0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Wenton, California.
1: Sometimes things are unexpected, amen? Getting a cold, having an unfortunate accident. Miss Lisa and Rebecca were in an accident on Friday. But thank the Lord they're here and they're okay. Maybe you go to a restaurant and... You expect things to be one way, but they turn out to be even better than you expected or worse than you expected. But these are things and challenges in life that we face every day. And we need to ask God for guidance. And we need to ask God for wisdom. And we need to understand that sometimes that wisdom comes in silence. That that wisdom isn't always a vocal thing that we hear from God. Sometimes it's in the everyday practices that we go through and don't think about. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 26. And I know we've been here for a while, but I have good news. Next week is the last week of Romans 8, so... Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows that the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So this morning, I want us to talk about The blessing of the guidance that the Lord gives us. The Spirit helps us with our weaknesses. And it's not the case that He helps at times when we are weak. But when, and also the fact that we live in a state of weakness. He is helping us continually. We are often perplexed by our prayer life. And we talked a little bit about that last week. Are you perplexed with your prayer life? Sometimes we pray selfishly and ignorantly. The great comfort we have during this period of waiting for the Lord's return is the presence of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who helps our weaknesses. And we have one great weakness while waiting for the Lord to return to us. And that is that we know what we should pray for and what we ought not to. And these are two obvious reasons why we cannot pray as we should. First, we cannot pray right because we cannot see into the future. We cannot pray right because we cannot see into the future. We cannot even see an hour ahead. Therefore, we may pray to be saved from things which are actually for our own good. Or we might pray for things that would eventually harm us. And secondly, We cannot pray right because in any given situation, we do not know who is good for us. Often we are like a child who wants something that is bound to hurt him or her. We cannot even know our own real need. We cannot, with our own finite minds, grasp what God's plan is. We don't fully understand it. Which is why we go to God for counsel. Which is why we open up the word. To understand what lies before us. To make a educated decision on what's good for us and what's not good for us. We cannot know our own real need. We cannot understand God's plan because it is an articulate plan. That sometimes we don't understand. But that's okay because... God understands. God understands his plans for you. And so he reveals that to us through our Christian walk. In the last analysis, all we can bring to God, while he has an inarticulate plan, we have an articulate sigh. Because we do not know. You see, the perfect prayer is simply, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Not my will, but thine be done. The only thing our Lord's disciples asked him to teach them was how to pray. We talked about that last week. Each believer encounters that same difficulty in knowing how to pray and for what to pray. Consequently, God has given his Holy Spirit to make intercession for us. And of course, we respond with what? Groaning disgust, not understanding what is our greatest need. Even when we do not know what to say to God, the Holy Spirit interprets our innermost feelings and he intercedes on our behalf. God hears these. He hears these sounds when the Holy Spirit makes that intercession for us. Otherwise, our desires would remain unexpressed. The indwelling Holy Spirit alone knows how to interpret our needs. Therefore, he makes his intercession within us, inspiring our yearnings, and thus fulfilling his gracious function as our comforter. The Lord Jesus promised as a comforter of like character with himself. And since we do not know what to pray for without his help, we are exhorted to pray at all seasons in the Spirit. This does not have anything to do with praying in tongues, as some might suggest. We see the groaning is done by the Holy Spirit, not by us, the believers. This is done by the Holy Spirit. And it's not exactly stated in words. See, the help the Spirit gives is His interceding. Paul prayed for the removal of of a hindrance in his life. But God did not take away that burden, did he? And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient to you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities and the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul knew there was a danger that others would Think more highly of him than they thought they ought to because of the visions and revelations he had experienced. However, he himself was protected from self exaltation by a persistent thorn in the flesh. What is your thorn in the flesh? What drives you? What separates you from having perfect peace with God and his plan? No one knows with certainty the nature of Paul's thorn in the flesh. It may have been a physical problem, such as defective eyesight or a lisp, epilepsy, or maybe even malaria. But perhaps I think it was more spiritual in nature. Temptation, satanic persecution. It may have even been an individual or group who continually harassed Paul. But in any case, it was bothersome to him as it would be bothersome to us but instead of removing the thorn God assured Paul that his grace and strength would be sufficient for Paul to bear it Paul's thorn in the flesh destroyed his pride and kept him dependent on divine power so I think that's a question that arises a lot of times why does God place difficulties in our lives And I think it's pretty simple. It's so God can show his divine power through you. To see you get through a difficult situation. To see you get through a time where it's not pleasant. But see, there's a mystery here. We're kind of peering into the unseen spiritual realm where a great person and a great force are at work on our behalf. And although we cannot understand it all, we take infinite encouragement knowing that we can't understand it all. Now That sounds funny to say, but we can take comfort in knowing that we don't know everything. Because then it allows us to rely upon that divine power. To allow God to intercede, to allow the Holy Spirit to intercede for us. And that's the point Paul is making here. Although we cannot understand it all, we can take that encouragement from the fact that a groan may sometimes be the most spiritual prayer. He does this in the heart and what Christ does before God. So creation groans. We groan. And the Holy Spirit groans. However, the Spirit groans within us. And in doing so, strengthens us to bear our trials but we can do so with confidence. We can do so with courage. And these groanings do not necessarily find expression in actual speech, but they are effective with God because we are told in the next verse, he searches the hearts of men. Human language is, as it would seem, not essential to divine intercession. Verse 27, Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of god so god through his omniscience is the one who searches our hearts and therefore he is entirely acquainted with the desire of our hearts and even though they cannot be uttered god knows what is in the mind of the spirit because he makes that intercession for the saints and of course, that's according to God's will. And God's knowledge of the mind of the Holy Spirit does not come from his intercession in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is one with the Father and with the Son in the Trinity, which is the Godhead. But since the Spirit's groanings are in accordance with God's mind and plan, his intercession for us is consistent with, with how God deals with us and fulfills His purpose within us. You see, the Spirit articulates those prayer burdens that God's people cannot even express. So even now, as we sit here, there may be a prayer that you're praying that you don't even know about. But the Holy Spirit is there to intercede for you and let God know this is what's going on. So when you have that indwelling feeling of guilt, shame. Maybe you're scared, frustrated about things in your life. God knows about it. God wants to intercede in those cases. Thus intercession is made for us not only by God the Son who sits at the right hand of God the Father but also by God the Spirit who dwells within the believer. So the phrase according to the will of God, is literally according to God. Now, I'm convinced that most Christians who read these lines recall one time or another when you were so burdened you could not even utter the words in a prayer. All you could say was, Oh, Lord, have mercy. Oh, Lord, take away this burden from me. Or even words similar to those. But nevertheless... The Holy Spirit knows the burden. He knows the desire, the longing of the heart of the believer. And therefore, He helps us at such a time. Verse 28 And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Polls have showed that this is the number three most favorite verse in the Bible. Big deal, right? It is a big deal. Let me read that again. And we know that all things work together for good. Right there. Perfect. All things work together for good. So knowing God's plan is for good, those opportunities that we see as difficulties are for good to those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, there are no accidents. Accidents. There are no accidents. God is working out all things together for good for those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. It may not always seem so, and sometimes when we are suffering heartbreak or tragedy, disappointment, frustration, bereavement, we wonder what good can come from it. However, the following verse in verse 29 gives us this answer. Whatever God permits to come into our lives is designed to conform us to the image of his son. So when we see this, it takes the question mark out of our prayers. And by faith, we believe that he who gave his own son can only mean good for us in all that he does. That's the great news right there. To understand that God is there with us. God is there for us and we don't have to do these things alone those who love god are protected by god impersonal forces such as chance luck or fate do not control our lives but the one in control is our wonderful personal lord who is too loving to be unkind and too wise to err so When left to our own resources, suffering is more likely to harden and embitter than it is to enable and dignify. However, the Bible is full of these occasions when God turned things around, making good out of what was evil. And you may remember that Joseph could look over his life, a life that was filled with disappointment, that was filled with hurt, filled with grief. And to say to his brothers who were responsible for that misfortune, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I am confident that we, as children of God, will be able to look back over our lives someday and say all of this worked out for good. Job could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. See, that's the kind of faith in God that we need to have. That's the kind of faith that we should aspire to. And that is the kind of faith in God we need. Because we know that He is going to make things work out for good because He is the one motivating it, He is the one behind it all. He is the one who is energizing it. You see, Paul had already given us two sources of encouragement for the believer. And in the midst of his distress in this world, how is that possible? How do we accept, love, and be grateful for the disappointments in our life? How do we do that? The Spirit of God within us gives us that source of strength. Now, the apostle lists a third source of encouragement for that believer. And in the midst of the sufferings of this life, God has given us knowledge that he is working out every detail of life to fall in line with his eternal purpose according to his purpose. There is nothing in the makeup of our universe to make us optimistic that everything will eventually work out to the satisfaction of good people. I know that bums some people out. But only through God and God's purpose does that even mean close to being achieved. Therefore, the promise of all things working together for good is given to a specific group. In other words, those who are in Christ Jesus and justified by his blood and who have responded to his call. The world in general does not have this promise. They don't have this promise. And all things, however, contrary to us, are under his control. Troubles, therefore, do not hinder Christian progress. Instead, they serve to further the intention of God's grace. See where I'm going there? Instead, they serve to further the intention of God's grace. All things work together for good. To them that are called, the two descriptions and those who love God and those who are called are to one another as a cause and effect. Those who love God are necessarily those who are called. It is significant that a believer's love for God always follows God's calling of him and is undoubtedly the product of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You see, we love him because he first loved us. The call, and always in the epistles, is an effectual call. But it produces the response of love of him who calls. And as believers, we were foreknown and foreordained prior to our birth. Yet God does not manipulate us like puppets. He gives you the choice. He gives you the opportunity to make that decision for yourself. But God wants to be there with you when you make those decisions he wants to provide that knowledge so that you can decipher what is right for you but not importantly what's right for you what is right according to god's plan verse 29 for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren From whom he foreknew. This and the next verse confirm verse 28, providing the ground of the certainty that God works all things together for good. And while God foreknows all men according to his attribute of forethought, yet obviously the word refers to those who have been described as them that love God. You see, God foreknew us in eternity past. This was not a piece of mere intellectual knowledge. And as far as knowledge is concerned, he knew everyone who would ever be born. And all ideas of human merit are absent from this passage. Because since what is being stressed is the absolute sovereignty of God in all his purposes and all his actions. Foreknowledge is not the same as predestination. The very verse before us distinguishes the two. His foreknowledge marks out the persons. His predestination determines his purposes and acts on their behalf. So let me illustrate this for you. On the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter vividly illustrated the harmony between God's sovereignty and man's personal responsibility. Even though the cross was in the eternal plan of God and part of his sovereign will, those who crucified Christ did so as a rebellious act of their will. Therefore, they bore personal responsibility for Christ's death. We too are responsible for our personal actions and behavior him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death. Now, probably no doctrine or piece of literature has ever evoked a greater variety of interpretations than that of God's foreknowledge. And although it is true that foreknowledge means to know beforehand, in the context of God's purpose here, It is to interpret the expression in this way, and it would be an oversimplification here. We would be oversimplifying it. For God to preview history in order to discern our response to the gospel and then act accordingly would make the creature sovereign over the creator. We are not above God. When God takes knowledge of his people, it is more than just a basic understanding of them. It is the knowledge a father has of a child. God knows and loves the world, but his foreknowledge of his own is an intimate knowledge which results in his abiding love. And for us, that draws us to him in salvation. See, God alone has complete knowledge, but nothing can be hidden from him. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Proverbs 15, 11. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing. He is absolutely omniscient. He is constantly aware of all that is going on in this universe. And of course, the important point in this context is that he knows where there is real faith and where there is only intellectual assent to facts. Foreknowledge must be understood as a part of God's relationship to his creation. So in other words, reconciling God's foreknowledge with the moral responsibility that we have as humans is a wonderful mystery of theology, one that will probably never be answered fully. But that's okay. We take comfort in knowing that we don't know everything. He also predestined, which was that he predestined. So in other words, it was that those who are saved will be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the foreknowledge of God was knowledge with a purpose that could never be frustrated. It is not enough to say that God foreknew those whom he realize would only one day repent and believe and actually his foreknowledge ensures eventual repentance and belief also that ungodly sinners will one day be transformed into the image of christ by a miracle of grace which is one of the most astounding truths of god's divine revelation i know it's a lot of big words and it's a lot to chew and it's a lot to handle But it's basically saying that God knows you. God knows your heart. You can hide it from everyone else, but you can't hide it from him. God's foreknowledge or predestination is not the same as fatalism. Fatalism says that the world is plunging headlong towards an indeterminate end. We know that to be true. God has already told us that. Paul teaches that there is a very determinate end for those who are the called as well. Their end or goal is to be conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. What is the goal of sitting here today? It's obviously not to hear this. What is your goal? Why do you sit in the pew this morning? It's because you want to be conformed to the image of God, am I right? So, if that's the case, as believers, we should become more and more like that master every day. In other words, we don't get a day off from Christianity, do we? No, we don't. And God is saying that. He goes, I know where you stand. I know where your heart is. And I'm going to be watching, waiting, but also supporting Encouraging, And that's what we need to do, to conform to the image of Christ. We must be encouragers. We must be a people who can come together for a collective purpose, and that is to serve our one and only God. As we have borne the characteristics of Adam to our natural birth, we shall also bear the image of Christ in our resurrection uh, our resurrected bodies. It is the eternal purpose of God that we become increasingly more conformed to the image of Him who is the supreme supreme being in this universe. In other words, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Believers are to be conformed not merely to something that is like Him, but to what He is Himself both in the spiritual body and in His moral character. In the latter respect, Christ is to be visible in believers now. In other words, if you are put on trial for being a Christian, there darn well better be evidence to convict you. There better be evidence to convict you. This is not accomplished by your self-effort or mine, but by the foreknowledge and foreordaining I can't even say it, I'm losing it. For grace. By God, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. The resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus Christ will become the head of a new race of humanity, purified from all contact with sin and prepared to live eternally in His presence. That should be our end result. That is our goal. That is our goal. The church is His body. He is its source and its life. Christ is not the first of a series, but he is the source. Christ is the source of a new creation and the sovereign head of that new creation, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He alone, not angels, not men. Christ has unshared supremacy. He has first placed. He is in a class all by himself. He is eminent above all others. He is not enough for Christ to be present nor prominent. He must be preeminent. And verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. From whom he called, these he also justified. In whom he justified, there he also glorified. Everyone who was predestined in eternity is also called in this time. And this means that he not only hears the gospel, but that he responds to it as well. This is our calling. We are not only to see the gospel, hear the gospel. We are to respond to the gospel. Therefore, as we respond, it is an effectual call. All our calls. Let me repeat that. All are called, but only a few respond to that call of God. All who respond are justified or given an absolutely righteous standing before God. They are clothed with the righteousness of God through the merits of Christ and are thereby fit for the presence of the Lord. Justification is a vital doctrine in Paul's thinking here. It is. When God justifies us he reckons us as if we are righteous because of the atoning death of jesus christ he imputes the righteousness of christ to our account to our account and those who are justified are also glorified the final step in the purpose of god is the glorification of his people the glorification of you and i we will ultimately be completely conformed to the image of his Son. So when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. This is God's view of salvation. This is his view of salvation. And actually, we are not yet glorified, but it is so sure that God can use the past tense in describing it. We are as certain as the glorified state as if we had already received it. We've already received it. Whether you like it or not. That's what he's saying. You've received it. So if we're not glorified yet, how can he speak in those terms? Because God knows your heart, He knows where you stand, He knows where we stand as a collective whole. And we can't hide from him. In the eternal Council of the Trinity, we are being called and justified to take place in our present experience. In other words, the glow or the glorification, which begins now. We can experience those things now. We don't have to wait till we pass from this earth and meet Him face to face. We can experience true godly joy now. And we will not ultimately and completely be known until the future. And although salvation, from our viewpoint, is an instantaneous act, it has, in fact, stretched from eternity past to eternity future. And it finds its basis not in our merit. Or in the works of the law. But in the purpose of God. It's in his purpose. Not ours. In the depression and turmoil of these days. Ladies and gentlemen. Nothing can be made. And nothing can be of greater encouragement to believers. Than to know. That God is working all things together. For his good. And his glory. Bar none. And this is the one. One of the strongest passages in the New Testament on the eternal security of the believer. For every million people who are foreknown and predestined by God, every one of those million will be called. Every one of those million will be justified. And every one of those million will be glorified. He will not lose one. Like I said, in verses 29 and 30, Paul is speaking of the experience that we all have as a Christian. From whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, there he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. In whom he justified, these he also glorified. There is a passage which has been seriously misused. And if we're going to understand it, we must face the fact that Paul never meant it to be a statement of theology or philosophy. He meant it to be the expression of Christian experience. It means that God chose some and did not choose others. That is not what it means here. Think of the Christian experience. Think of your own life as a Christian. The more a Christian thinks about his or her salvation experience, the more he or she becomes convinced that he or she had nothing to do with it, and God did it all. Jesus Christ came into the world. He lived, he went to the cross, and he rose again. We did nothing to bring that about. That is all God's work. Love woke within our hearts. The conviction of sin came. And with it came forgiveness and salvation. We did not achieve any of that. All of that is God's doing. And this is what Paul is thinking here. See, the Old Testament has an illuminating use of the word to know. To know. God said to Hosea about the people of Israel, I knew you in the wilderness. And God told Amos, You only have I known all of the families of the earth. And when the Bible speaks of knowing a man, it means that he has a purpose. It means that he has a plan. And a task for that man as well. And when we look back on our own Christian experience, All we can say is, I did not do this. I did not orchestrate this. You did, God. You are the one that was there. You are the one that provided the opportunities. You provided the knowledge so that I could walk through that situation. You provided everything. And I think it is the deep experience of the Christian that all is of God that he did nothing, and that God did everything. That is what Paul really means here. He means that from the beginning of time, God marked us out for salvation, that in due time, his call came to us. But the pride of man's heart can wreck God's plan, and the disobedience of man's will can refuse that call. But God also said that he doesn't lose one, does he? So where's the distinction here? But this is what I believe. And I believe it represents what the majority of Christians today believe. Many good Christians disagree. However, we can respect their views, right? However, if our view is wrong, it has the result of causing us to have a greater desire to give the gospel to everyone. And that is what Jesus told us to do in the Great Commission. In his intercession in the Old Testament, intercession is used with regard to prayer. We've gone through this. Omniscience, a theological term that refers to God's superior knowledge and wisdom, to know all things. His foreknowledge was the unique knowledge of God that enabled him to know all events, including the free will acts of people. So people ask that all the time. Why did God give us free will? Because he did. And he knew it. Predestination. Divine and unalterable determination of the salvation or damnation of human beings even before they are created. All that does is highlight God's divine supremacy. That's all it does. Scholastics tried to reconcile predestination with reason, but only with a measure of success. For them, predestination could coexist with apparent human free will because God was outside of time and for him all things are present and there is no past and future. However, this solution was attacked by many scholars and others who question how God's love can be harmonized with this predetermination on how God can be sovereign but cannot change his own will. And this is a debate that we can go on for, I don't know, two years, maybe longer. But that's not the point. The point this morning is God knows your heart. He knows where you stand. He knows His plan for you. Do you know God's plan for you? John Wesley, who is a fiery Methodist preacher supported Arminianism because missionary work was meaningless if people are already predetermined to be saved or condemned. We can go into Arminianism, we can go into Calvinism and again that's a whole other sermon but God knows our heart. Thus predestination remains not so much a doctrine as it is a mystery. There are some things that a believer is absolutely sure of. He knows, for instance, that God is in control. He believes that an invisible hand is always on the world's tiller and that wherever providence may drift, God steers it. That reassuring knowledge prepares him for everything and he looks over the raging waters, and he sees the Spirit of Jesus treading that water. And he hears a voice saying, it is I, be not afraid. He knows, too, that God is always wise, and always knowing this, he is confident that there can be no accidents, no mistakes, that nothing can occur which should not happen. He can say, if I should, by God's will, lose all that I have, It is better than having all those temporary things. In other words, the world that we live in is not our home. This is not our home. This is just a step into that final home. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. The Christian does not merely believe this as a theory. He knows it as fact. He knows it as fact. Every event in a believer's life has worked out with divinely blessed results. And so, believing that God rules all, that he governs wisely, and that he brings good out of evil, the believer's heart is assured. And he is enabled to calmly meet each trial as it comes. My mother-in-law has a, one of those placard things on her wall. And I'll just kind of, briefly say, but it basically says that God does not give you anything that you can't handle. God is going to give you an opportunity to get through that trial with his help because he loves us and he knows your heart. The believer can, in the spirit of true acceptance, pray this. Send me what you will, my God, so long as it comes from you. There never was anything wrong that came from your table to any of your children. We trust in God's plan. We trust that He knows what's best for us. And how do we do that? We have communion with Him, we speak with Him, we attain the knowledge that He provides for us so that we know without a shadow of a doubt He knows our heart. And hopefully that heart is one that is loving and willing to do the work that God has laid out for us. Ben is going to come and give us our benediction. But I pray this morning that as we meet those opportunities in life, whether it be a positive reinforcement, a tragedy, an accident, whatever may befall us, that we as Christians can take comfort in knowing this is not a mistake. There are no mistakes. This is part of God's plan. And that journey that we take as individuals and as a group to allow those things to glorify God. We allow those things to glorify God. Amen. Ben, lead us.
0: This morning, with that understanding that God knows us and he knows our hearts, we still have a responsibility on ourselves, and that's to follow Christ's call for us to daily take up our cross and to follow him. So this morning, uh, as we close, we're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus and just use this as a prayer um, to commit to that. With that knowledge, like I said, that we know that God knows us through and through. We recognize this morning that it is our responsibility to daily choose to follow him. No turning back, no turning back Though none go with me, still I will follow Though none go with me, still I will follow Though none go with me, still I will follow follow. no turning back, no turning back The world behind me, the no cross before me The world behind me, the cross before me The world behind me, the cross before me no turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. No turning back.
1: Heavenly Father, as we leave your house this morning, I pray we open our hearts and our eyes to the opportunities that you lay before us. Lord, they may be difficulties, they may be temptations, they may be things of this world that we can't even fathom, but Lord, we know that you will be there with us, that you will continue to guide us. And Lord, we do all these things to further your kingdom and to exemplify the glory that you deserve. Lord, thank you so much for our time this morning, and I pray that we all get to our and destinations this afternoon. But Lord, I pray that we also take time this afternoon and every day to recognize how great you are, how wonderful you are to us, and you are to your people. Thank you for the ultimate sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can even stand here today and stand here today and be confident in knowing that we have eternal salvation by what you did and not what we did. Thank you, Lord, for this time. And all of God's people said, amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The
0: Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved.